the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. We made it to Friday, April 22nd, 2020. Was this for some reason an inordinately long week? Inordinately or extraordinarily? In any event, if you'll permit me a few thoughts to summarize a bit of where I think we are as a country just now, and for we conservatives as a movement, the headline this morning from Yahoo News, which is the main story and headline that was linked to from the Drudge Report, is this, quote, Florida ends Disney special status as culture war flares. That's the headline. Culture war flares. I love that. Passive voice. May I give you the first two sentences from the story? Because the tilt of the story is not at all passive like the headline. It has a responsible party. I'll let you guess which one. First sentence is Florida's legislature scrapped Disney's self-governing status in its Orlando, excuse me, in its Orlando theme park on Thursday in a move widely seen as retaliation in a bitter row over what has become known as the don't say gay law. Next sentence. The bill, which is expected to be signed into law by Governor Ron DeSantis, is the latest feint in a U.S. culture war undertaken by the conservative presidential hopeful that has left Disney floundering, close quote. Yes, this is a culture war that was undertaken by Ron DeSantis. Let me work backward just a moment. The story wants you to think two things immediately and up front, that Ron DeSantis is doing this because he's a presidential hopeful. He's never announced for president. Two, what Governor DeSantis and his Republican Party have done, they're telling us, is retaliate for a response to a feint in our culture war that was commenced, undertaken, Started is the right synonym here by Ron DeSantis. That's the point they're making, isn't it? Got it? The culture war is bad, and it was started by Ron DeSantis and the Republicans. None of this is true, nor should it be accepted as true. This is opinion, and may I say gaslighting or blaming the victim, dressed up and pitched as an objective news story. My pitch to you. Be on guard against this sort of thing, this kind of bias. Don't accept it. Shall we talk culture war just a moment? Blaming Republicans or conservatives for starting a culture war or our culture wars is one of the tactics to shame and shun and shut us up. And it's based on a faulty analysis, a wrong, heavily wrong analysis. I'm reminded of Abraham Lincoln and what he said about the Civil War in his second inaugural address. He said all dreaded it, all sought to avert it, both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. Yes, the war came, and we accepted it. None of us on our side wanted it. Peggy Noonan in the Wall Street Journal today has a passing sentence that's important. She writes, quote, right now, our political moment 
is pretty much nonstop crises, close quote. (laughs) Wake up and smell the coffee. Yes, it is. They are not crises that we started, however. As you know, we live in what we call here and what the left seems to operate on and wants us to operate in, which is the crisis industrial complex. I need to put a trademark on that phrase. Always keep us in crisis. Things are always horrible. They're always the worst they can possibly be. Republican presidents and leaders aren't conservatives or even right wing anymore. They are tyrants. They are fascists. They are bigots, sometimes white supremacists, and even worse than Hitler when the usual superlative nouns lose their poignance through syntactical saturation. America is always on the eve of destruction. We will all die from a population bomb. That was the theory out of Stanford in the 1970s, picked up by everyone. And then when Ronald Reagan became president in the next decade, it was nuclear war that he would unleash, resulting in nuclear winter. And then in the next decade, when Newt Gingrich was the power in Washington and no nuclear or population bombs went off, It was earth in the balance and climate disaster, which started as global global warming and now is climate change where, quote unquote, entire ecosystems are vanishing before our very eyes, at least according to Times Person of the Year, Greta Thunberg. Today being Earth Day, we're going to return to this point. All of this yielded COVID and everything around that. Millions of Americans to die requiring us to shut down everything and change everything as if truly as if a nuclear bomb did go off and we all had to be confined as long as possible, lest the radiation or the viral fallout and transmission of it brings us as but one construction of it from Joe Biden had it a winter of severe illness and death. While all that was going on and we were trying to get through those crises stacked one upon another and the left was taking over the schools, the left was taking over the schools. Yes, of course. We know they'd done that with our colleges and universities, but we had no idea, it seems, they were starting so much younger. Kindergarten. And why not? You've heard me quote the song from South Pacific before. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to hate. You've got to be taught before it's too late. Before you are six or seven or eight, Rogers and Hammerstein saw the left a long time ago. Before you are six or seven or eight. And that's what Florida and the issue there is about. Teaching children highly adult-themed sexual concepts and ideation well before the kids are six or seven or eight. Who started that? Was that us starting it? As for we conservatives... The allergy to engaging culture wars requires an immediate antihistamine if we're going to go back to our regular business of trying to be a normal country in normal times. This is not unrecognized by vast swaths of the American electorate. You think of the Republicans the media has attacked and slandered the most. They are the same ones that seem to be most popular with what the elites consider to be the vulgar crowd or the culture warriors. Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis. In their own ways, they each understood the culture as well and better than anyone else, and thus the threats coming from it and the need to take it on. In Reagan's day, it was the notion of good and evil, race and abortion, and he picked off a lot of Democrats for, you bet, 
going there. They joined him. But all these battles were responses to what the left foisted on society. It wasn't Reagan, for example, who under the banner of Karl Marx invaded countries to turn them communist. It wasn't Reagan who federalized abortion policy. It wasn't Reagan who thought people should be punished or hired and promoted based on the color of their skin. Today, the so-called war is now in our schools and making of our children the fighters. And what they are being used to fight for is what is so demanding of our attention. And if we respond, if we do give it attention, we are seen as the ones initiating it. And for political purposes, leave them alone, you know. This is what we do in schools. Note what is really going on here. It's the liberals that think they own or should own the culture. And as any good revolutionary movement knows, it must always start with kids, with children. That's why there were and are communist youth groups from the old Soviet Union to China today, of course, the Nazi youth in the 1930s and 1940s. So when we respond, the left knows they cannot fight and live in the light of day and with majoritarian sentiment. So they must take out our culture politicians, Reagan, Trump, DeSantis. You saw this with the libs of TikTok. All the libs of TikTok did was repromulgate and reproduce that which woke lefty teachers had already disseminated on TikTok. They just didn't think conservatives would ever see it, I guess. Think about it a moment. They may know what we may know, the left. Culture fighting conservatives and Republicans are the ones who do best and are rallied around the most which is why the left wants to take them out and blame shift so much. Think about it. Think about it. Has any Republican outside of Reagan, DeSantis or Trump received more hateful media coverage, more ideological editorial? The thing is this, and I think this, there's always a tug, a societal pull towards evil and destruction. Of course there is. You've heard me quote Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind saying what too many people forget is it's just as easy to make money building society as it is in taking a society down. This isn't about money, of course, our culture wars or our culture camp. It's about everything else Marxists care about, from family to governance to what it means to be human to what it means to be a male to what it means to be a female. The question is not then why are there Marxists As Whitaker Chambers reminds, it's really man's second oldest faith that we shall be as gods. The real question is why do we tolerate it or at a minimum not taking it on hammer and tongs and fighting it further? My gosh, Ron DeSantis is teaching a lesson, isn't he? If you have brains and you know your subject and you are willing to go up against the left, the worst thing that can happen to you is they might just make you president. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960, Open Lines Friday. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Um, I gave you a little Rogers and Hammerstein in my monologue in the um, previous segment, the first segment, and uh, I think maybe I'll give you a little Hans Christian Andersen um, here. This was Joe Biden yesterday. I don't know how many of you caught it. Uh, Joe Biden uh, was asked a request, a question by a reporter on um, Title 42. This is the uh, this is the health code uh, that he is stopping uh, to use at that. He is he is canceling ending. Uh, It was it was it was a provision that allowed us to return 
illegal immigrants to their country of origin under the health emergency that we were under given COVID. And Joe Biden is unilaterally canceling that so that illegal immigrants will not be returned as easily. In other words, they will stay here for a longer period of time or maybe forever, uh, depending on how long this administration will stay here. Anyway, he was asked about it yesterday uh, by a reporter. This is what you got. No, what I'm considering is continuing to hear from my uh, my uh, first of all, there's going to be an appeal by the Justice Department. Because as a matter of principle, we want to be able to be in a position where if, in fact, it is strongly concluded by the scientists that we need Title 42, that we'd be able to do that. But there has been no decision on extending Title 42. Do you realize what just happened right there? He gave a long and fractious answer about something that wasn't asked about, confusing what a federal judge in Florida did with regard to public transportation and mask mandates with his own authority, which is unilateral, to end the 42, Title 42 policy. He ha- there is no appeal on Title 42. It's his call, his decision. He's made it. He goes into this long-winded talk about debates over whether we're going to appeal the judge's decision. There was no judge's decision on this. This was his decision. As uh, Hinderocker says, Title 42 is a reference to the Trump-era CDC rule authorizing the summary expulsion of immigrants crossing the border because of COVID-19. The Biden administration has set to terminate the relevant Title 42 order on May 23rd. In his answer... Biden referred to an appeal of the ruling against the CDC mask mandate earlier this week. Did Biden misspeak? There is no evidence that anyone who heard Biden's remarks was confused by them. In context, Biden was obviously referring to the court decision holding the CDC mask mandate illegal. As Biden stated, the Department of Justice has announced its appeal of the ruling And everyone understood what he was talking about. Biden himself promptly clarified his reference to the CDC's mask mandate, adding that there is no Department of Justice action on Title 42. Title 42 is not even within the jurisdiction of the Department of Justice, folks. There is no judicial ruling to be appealed. Those present at this presser understood perfectly well what Biden meant. Biden's correction simply clarified what everyone else already understood. It wasn't a miscommunication, folks. That's what's so tragically awful. I was going to say sad. It's awful. It's awful. You have a commander-in-chief, a president of the United States, who is incapable of knowing about his own administration's policies, where he is, and maybe sometimes who he is. Hans Christian Andersen the emperor's new clothes. We were taught the story a long time ago. A lot of us were. I don't know if they still teach it. It's the story where you find it's often harder to be honest than it is to be silent. And that trusting ourselves is the best road to the truth. We see the pestilence of false flattery and we find that honesty, unlike new clothes, never goes out of fashion, unless, of course, 
you're a conservative. Honesty doesn't go out of fashion in a normal country in normal times. It goes out of fashion now, here. You know, Barack Obama spoke at Stanford yesterday, and he was talking about, gosh, these people, they love this new issue. It must poll somewhere. This this is what was at the University of Chicago, too. It was a conference on disinformation. Do you think that this con- these conferences are coming up, by the way, are popping up all around us just at the same time, just at the same time Elon Musk is about to end viewpoint discrimination at Twitter? Do you find that at all interesting, this phrase? Dis- How many of you, by the way, until, you know, you tuned into stations like this, there's no station like this, until you turned into this station, how many people have you – how many out there actually even used the word disinformation? Disinfo- wait, zero, right, Bill? That's not a word we used until, what, a month ago? I mean, it's a word. It's not a neologism, but it wasn't part of our parlance. And now it's been given us, what What do we, what do we call it, the Bader-Meinhof syndrome? Now you can't avoid it. I want to talk a little bit more about this and what Obama said at Stanford Because it's an awfully interesting thing, this freedom of speech for me but not for thee kind of thing. It's a really interesting thing that people like Barack Obama, who we once – you know, it's a funny thing about him too. We – when, when he was elected president, we thought this was the most left-wing presidency and the most left-wing administration we'd ever seen. And it was up until that point. But – Obsta principis, as my classics professor Steve Glass used to like to say. Be wary of first reasons, first principles, first judgments. Because, as Shakespeare liked to say, you can't say this is the worst if you can say this is the worst. And we now have something that many of us thought made Obama kind of look moderate. By comparison... Right? We kind of did. We kind of, if we're being honest, we kind of thought compared to the modern Democratic Party that has, you know, grown over the, over the tenure of Obama's absence, that Obama kind of looked moderate compared to them. He's not. He's moved with the Democratic Party. I'll show you how and why when we come right back. I'm Seth Leapson, 602 Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I am Seth Leibson. What if you could do well by doing good? What if you could invest in a secure and collateralized portfolio, earn exceptional fixed returns, and actually help other people? With Why Refi, you can. Why Refi refinances defaulted private student loans while others will not. Their customers get out of debt and see their FICO scores improve as they will then see their lives in. This is a great company that, yes, helps those college graduates who are drowning in student debt, but also in looking for investments where people can invest in this product, in this project, in this effort to help students, you can get a tremendous return. I take these kinds of investment endorsements very seriously, and I know the good people at Y-Refi. They're good people. They're great people. I would never endorse anything like an investment unless I truly believed in it. I've been there. I've seen them. I've met with them. And it's in 
impressive. Do me a favor if you're looking for an investment where you can help people as well. Go to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com. Local company. Why Refi is in the business of helping people that others won't, and you can be too. Should make you feel good. Go to investyrefi.com or give them a call at 855-316-3087. I was talking about this new ethic ethos conversation, national conversation. That's what people used to call these things. We need a national conversation on. Remember that? We need a national conversation on race. We need a national conversation on X, Y, Z. We've never had those national conversations because half of the country wants to stop and censor the conversation while the other half of that half wants to condemn those who don't believe in the side that wants to censor. In any event, it seems like we are going through a national conversation from one side – And one perspective, barring three brave University of Chicago students, we are going through one on social media and disinformation. These students, unfortunately, weren't at Stanford yesterday where Barack Obama was. I don't imagine they would have been allowed to ask questions even if they were. But Barack Obama was giving a um, a talk yesterday at Stanford on disinformation. I have a local report uh, uh, that I want to just play a little bit of. Uh, a bit of the audio from uh, for you, if you'll bear with me just a moment. This is Obama and a little bit of side reporting uh, at Stanford. Social media is a tool. Social media is a tool. At the end of the day, tools don't control us. We control them. And we can remake them. Obama, also a fan of regulation. These big platforms need to be subject to some level of public oversight and regulation. He also spoke about how disinformation erodes trust in democracy. One lucky MBA student who was invited to a roundtable with the former president says he sees how disinformation can impact elections. Like how people get the information to make the decisions on who to vote for. Uh, If you don't protect that, then it becomes very difficult to make informed decisions one way or the other. Solving the disinformation problem won't cure all that ails our democracies or tears at the fabric of our world. But it can help tamp down divisions and let us rebuild the trust and solidarity needed to make our democracy stronger. Reporting in Palo Alto. Do you guys um, understand what he's saying there? It won't be a cure-all, but it will help us tamp down divisions. That may have been a gaffe in the sense of saying something honest you didn't quite mean to let out. That was the original meaning of the term gaffe. I think Michael Kinsley coined it. Saying something that's true that you didn't quite mean to let leave your lips. If we don't go after misinformation, we won't be able to tamp down division. What do you think of it? Do you do you think division in a democracy or in a Republican form of government is division a bad thing or is actually division kind of part of the design here? If you read James Madison on factions, for example, let me come back to more of what Obama said yesterday, because it's I wish I had a better word for it than this, but it's quite 
precious. You're not going to want to miss this. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the good people at Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com, to get their fruits and veggies. I got up extra earlier today. Uh, I was doing the Mike Gallagher uh, show, part of the Mike Gallagher show earlier. It was an honor. It was a pleasure. It was a privilege. Uh, but I had to get up a little extra early, and uh, so I was a little more tired. I'm, I'm, I'm always tired, <laughs> more tired on Friday, so I was a little more tired. And uh, so I popped some extra, just a little extra balance of nature to uh, get me going. I usually take it in the afternoon. I popped a little extra this morning because you can't overdose on fruits and vegetables, and that's what it is, 100% natural fruits and vegetables. Balance of nature gives you 10 servings of fruits and vegetables in one daily dose. Check them out balanceofnature.com. They're fruits and veggies. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Talking to you about Barack Obama's speech at Stanford yesterday on this issue, subject of disinformation. Now, one of the interesting things is they quoted a graduate student in the previous uh, segment that, or in the, in, the, in the news piece I played for you in the pre- previous segment. And the grad student said, yes, of course, disinformation can affect elections. That's what he said. I don't think he thinks what we think about that. I don't think he's referring to what my mind goes to. My mind goes to the nearer election, not the further election. His mind is going to 2016. Mine is going to 2020. You bet disinformation can affect an election. And there was no proof whatsoever that Russian disinformation affected the 2016 election, though Hillary Clinton still maintains it, though Jimmy Carter maintained it, though Nancy Pelosi was tweeting about it and claiming it. No evidence. What the evidence did show is that disinformation was ginned up about Russian disinformation by the Hillary Clinton campaign and its attorneys or their attorneys. Yeah, its attorneys. What was disinformation that truly did affect a presidential outcome was the bearing and the censoring of the Hunter Biden laptop story, which, by the way, was buried and censored using what shibboleth? What word? What did what did all the ex-Obama intelligence agents say about the Hunter Biden story in order to keep it cabined from the American people? What did they say? They said it looked an awfully lot like Russian disinformation. They said it looked like a Russian disinformation campaign. You remember when Nancy Pelosi said for Donald Trump, all roads lead to Russia? Oh, my gosh. That's what you call projection. That's what you call projection. We have surveys from the Media Research Center that about 50 percent of Biden voters in swing states had never heard of the Hunter Biden story. That's not the real problem. That's not the real issue. What 10 percent of them said was that had they, they would not have voted for Joe Biden. Do you know what that means? That means Donald Trump would be president today. You take away 10 percent of Biden's votes in six things, the six swing states they did the surveys in. Donald Trump would be president. So you damn well betcha disinformation can affect elections. It's just that affects it affects elections against Republicans, not against Democrats. I suppose we should be on the lookout for those things when they make it such an issue, when they make something such an issue. Know that they're up to something foul. 
up to something foul. We cannot be a normal country in a normal time because of what they perpetrate on us. Now, in his speech yesterday at Stanford, Barack Obama opened this way. He said, I believe that in most instances, the answer to bad speech is good speech. I believe that the free, robust, sometimes antagonistic exchange of ideas produces better outcomes and a healthier society. He said he's, quote, pretty close to a First Amendment absolutist, close quote. That's how he opened. I'm pretty close to an absolute to a first to being a First Amendment absolutist. Then he goes on to say, and I'm quoting from his speech, a regulatory a regulatory structure, a smart one needs to be in place designed in consultation with tech companies and experts and communities that are affected, including communities of color and others that sometimes are not represented well here in Silicon Valley that will allow these companies to operate effectively while also slowing the spread of harmful content. In some cases, industry standards may replace or substitute for regulation, but regulation has to be part of the answer. When he's talking about the spread of harmful conduct, just as that graduate student was talking about elections being affected by disinformation, he's not thinking of the harmful conduct you and I are thinking about when you hear that phrase. When you think of a harmful product or harmful uh, harmful conduct or harmful content. When you think about harmful content, his phrase, harmful content, what do you think of? You know what I think of? I think of the fair that five-year-olds were being subject to in Florida. That's what I think is harmful content. But boy, you try and stop that and you're a bigot and a racist. His idea of harmful content is pretty much anything conservatives believe or Republicans say his speech went from I'm pretty much a First Amendment absolutist to here is how and here is why you can engage in regulation of social media. Now, I know First Amendment doesn't attach. In a strict sense to private companies because the First Amendment attaches to government. But we are talking about freedom of speech here, and you either believe in it or you don't. And these private companies have created the public sphere, the public talking ground, the Hyde Park, if you will, of where political conversation takes place now. Now, I was kind of seized by another comment of his where he said social media doesn't rule us. It's a tool for us. Why would that be any different than the New York Times or the Washington Post? He said social media is a tool. Why wouldn't regular media be equally a tool? The New York Times doesn't rule him or me, and Washington Post doesn't rule him or me. It's a tool in the same exact way social media is a tool, is it not? It's an institution or instrument of information. They may call it news. We may call it opinion, but it's no different than social media except by what? Dint of the number of employees and who works there and how it's produced. Really, only differences, aren't they? Aren't they? What is, why, why is the Washington Post and the New York Times not a tool? 
It is, Barack Obama, by your own definition of how social media is a tool. So my point in making this is if he's making the argument legal and moral and political that we should be able to regulate disinformation as he sees it in these social media tools, why wouldn't that also apply to regular media as well? You know why? Because the New York Times and the Washington Post would go ape, you know what, A and B. It's the disinformation he likes. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I can't let the first hour go by without uh, mentioning what Steve Hayward mentions over a power line. Yes, it is Earth Day today. It's also Vladimir Lenin's birthday, but I'm sure that's just a coincidence, Steve's writes. I know you can't contain your excitement, but let us try. As always, today he says is a good day to check in with Mark Perry's list of 18 predictions made on the first Earth Day in 1970 all of which have been proven spectacularly wrong. My favorite, this is Steve Hayward's favorite, Peter Gunter, a North Texas State University professor, wrote in 1970, quote, demographers agree almost unanimously on the following grim timetable. By 1975, widespread famines will begin in India. There will be, they will be, these will be spread by 1990 to include all of India, Pakistan, China, and the Near East Africa. By the year 2000, possibly sooner, South and Central America will exist under famine conditions. And by the year 2000, 30 years from now, writing the entire world, with the exception of Western Europe, North America and Australia, will be in famine. Close quote. But the expert agreed, experts agreed almost unanimously. It was settled science, a consensus even. Steve writes, even the left finds the day more than a little glum just now, though. That's because the world hasn't ended yet. Remember, end of the world doomsday scenarios make environmentalists happy. So when the end of the world fails to arrive on schedule, they get the sads. Like the New Republic, which asks this week in a headline, quote, remember when Earth Day used to be cool? They write, a person could be forgiven for being cynical about Earth Day in 2022. Even ExxonMobil now celebrates the holiday. ExxonMobil doing Earth Day is a lot like arms and aerospace giant Lockheed Martin co-opting International Women's Day, a holiday which began as a protest of capitalism and war. Did you know International Women's Day was a protest against capitalism? Did you? Many contemporary defenders of the planet, the New Republic writes, Despise Earth Day. In fact, at this point, the hatred is an annual ritual observed with head headlines like, I'm an environmental scientist and I hate Earth Day, or I'm an environmental journalist and I hate Earth Day, or I'm an environmentalist and I hate Earth Day. The author's answer, more mass protest. That's the New Republic's solution. More mass protest. Q. Greta Thunberg. Oh, and concerning that corporate Earth Day participation, yeah, we can talk about that, too. The movement ended the moment corporations got involved. The movement didn't understand that unless you had corporations on board and involved, you were never going to do anything for the environment in the first place. Boy, they are confused over there on the other side, aren't they? If only they'd 
you know, let us talk a little more in their platforms or debate us or listen to us just once in a while or at least, you know, 10% as much as we listen to them, they might figure some of these things out. I'm Seth Leaps, and we're going to do some politics with George Kaloff when we come back. I have a few people on hold. If you don't mind holding or call back in about a half hour, we'll get to you. I promise. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.